Hello and welcome back. This is Alpha Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. What comes next? It's good for me. How's it good for me? Yeah, it's gonna like be, make you in touch with the spirit of the popular. Totally untrue, but um, you know, I'll creepily hang around at the edges. So. <laughs> nothing, nothing new there. Uh, <laughs> audience controls who hate Brexit hate sports. Ah, <laughs> uh, you got him. Yeah, that's it. So this is our final full episode of 2017, and today we're talking about sport and scandal. The 2018 World Cup is only six months away, and the world organizing body for football is again mired in controversy over corruption. So we're first talking to football journalist Ewan Marshall about what's going on, what's at stake in the world's game, and trying to understand what drives FIFA as an institution. Then we're moving on to other scandals in sport. We're debating doping, diving, and cheating. What's up with all the hysteria around this and why do we care? Oh, and we're putting forward the progressive case for cheating in sports. Yeah, that's right, fair play sucks. Pleased to have you with us. Hello politics, my old friend. Mr. Warner, good morning, welcome to Zurich. Can I ask you, do you expect FIFA to clear you this week? Uh, you know, can we ask you yet again, how much profit did you make selling World Cup tickets this year? Oh, Mr Warner, come on, you always say that uh, tra- FIFA is very transparent. Can, can you explain to the viewers why is it that the Trinidad players are so unhappy about their earnings from the World Cup? Oh, this, this is only a very polite inquiry, Mr Warner. If I could have spit on you. If you could spit on me, you would spit on me? I will not, of course. Why would you spit on me? Because you're garbage. I'm garbage. You're garbage. But, but, you know, what viewers are interested to know, and fans, is how much money did you make selling World Cup tickets this year? Ask your mother. Ask? Your mother. Ask my mother. My mother's dead, actually, but it's nice of you to remind me of that. What a fighter. Thank you so much, Mr. Warner. Crisis? What is a crisis? If somebody of you would uh, describe to me what there is a crisis, then I would answer. Football is not in a crisis. When you have seen the match, the final match of the Champions League, then you must applaud and you see what the game is, what is fair play on the game, what is good control of the game. We are not in a crisis. We are only in some difficulties. FIFA is a comically grotesque organisation. In fact, telling someone about the inner workings of FIFA for the first time is a bit like showing someone two girls one cup. You, you do it mainly so you can watch the horrified expression on people's faces. I thank you for the trust and confidence. Trust and confidence, together we go. Let's go FIFA, let's go FIFA, thank you. Armstrong has consistently denied the doping claims. In all seven of your Tour de France victories, did you ever take banned substances or blood dope? Yes. In your opinion, was it humanly possible to win the Tour de France without doping? Seven times in a row. Not in my opinion. If you take me back to 1995, when it was completely and totally pervasive. Probably do it again. He won't like to hear that. 
Do you feel as though these can of worms, because these are particularly emotive subjects, I think, the, grab, the grabbing in the box and the diving is, is a, the emotive subject for fans, I think, um, as well as the media. Do you believe, as from the refereeing side, that they are the, if you like, disease that in the game that people suggest, or do you believe from the referee's side that actually it's not as big as what people suggest? Look at the Portugal players there, look. It's the Ronaldo. England, England never, we never do that to referees by trying to put pressure on them. What is it? I mean, I don't know, are we, are we, are we too it, honest? Or? I think people complain about football as being kind of, you know, petulant and difficult and, you know, diving. And I love all that. The more of that, the better, really. All right, so uh, we're all five of us here, um, not in the same room, but metaphorically all here together. And before we get stuck in, we need to know where we all stand so that there's no kind of hidden biases here. So we're going to go around the room and we're going to name our allegiances. Uh, we need to know if you're on the side of good or evil, on the side of beauty or ugliness, on the side of romance or cynicism, do you support Liverpool Football Club or Manchester United? Ben. I would never support Liverpool. I'm a Manchester United fan, first, and a Corinthians fan, second, uh, and an Arsenal hater, third. <laughs> <laughs> Two out of three ain't bad. Um, any, other, any other sporting allegiances you need to divulge? Uh, I'm South African, so I support South African sports teams, even if it brings me more pain than it's worth. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, I'll go next. It's uh, Liverpool for me, as you could probably tell from the introduction. Uh, Corinthians in Brazil. Uh, Ewan, name your allegiances. Well, yeah, growing up in Glasgow as a good Catholic boy, I am a Celtic fan uh, through and through. And here in Brazil, I've picked up Palmeiras as my adopted team as a nice counterpoint to these these poor Corinthians that I have around me. But, you know, Celtic and, yeah, a bit of Palmeiras. And, and Scotland, no Scotland for you. And Scotland, no, I mean, I, I, after, <laughs> after, this, even mention, after this year, I'd like to kind of put that one in the back burner for a while. <laughs> All right. <laughs> um, Phil, Phil, what are, you, what are your sporting allegiances? I have no allegiances. I'm like a, I'm like a liberal... I remain supporting European Union, believer in the European Union and cosmopolitan liberal who floats above like such kind of petty and parochial attachments as sporting teams. So <laughs> I, have no, I have no allegiances at all. How high minded. If only more Thank people you, were like you. <laughs> that's what I aspire Vote Lib Dem. <laughs> <laughs> all right. And finally, George, what are your, what are your sporting allegiances? Yeah. So I'm, I'm a Liverpool fan. Um, I'm, I'm quite uncomfortable to be sharing Mike's with a United fan, but that's that's fine. I'm sure we can get through it. Um, and Reading as well. That's that makes my the worst people team. complain. <laughs> yeah. Um, and also England. I'm a, I'm an England fan, so I think we've really got a good chance in the World Cup. Seriously. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. I mean, I did. I, you smuggled in the little Reading mention in there, which is the most Tory team in England. I mean, I remember when Liverpool played them and. Liverpool sang a song celebrating the death of Maggie Thatcher or saying that they were going to celebrate when Maggie Thatcher died. Reading fans universally booed that. Um, so you, you know they're, they're blues in more than just their strips. Yeah, so their, their nickname is the Royals and their sponsor uh, for a while was Waitrose, the most middle-class <laughs> supermarket. So, yeah. That's my hometown, so can't get around it, can you? Excellent. All right, let's, let's get stuck in. Um... 2018 is World Cup year, and 
FIFA has sort of been a bit of a villain over the past couple of years, mired in corruption scandals, and this sort of thing is continuing. There's a trial ongoing in Boston, and so we're really happy to have you and Marshall here, who's a football journalist, to talk us through a little bit of what's going on, try to understand it beyond just the sort of uh, details about the corruption, but trying to understand what FIFA is an institution and what the politics are driving it. Um, so you and I guess to get started, what, what are the latest allegations? So what, what's going on now? Well, yeah, so as you say, we have this trial ongoing, which has been running since 2015. And we've got lots of the officials who were arrested at the start of 2015. They're currently uh, on trial. Almost all of these guys are South Americans. Either they are officials of like regional football associations or they are executives of these sports marketing companies. And, you know, we'll get we'll get onto these details a bit later on. Um, the most recent accusation, the most relevant recent accusation has been the first piece of concrete evidence that the trial has found that there was, in fact, a vote buying in the selection of Qatar as the host for 2022. And this came from the a guy called Alejandro Borzaco, who's on trial in the US, and he is the head of this Argentinian sports broadcasting company called uh, Torneos y Competencias. And essentially, he is involved in so many other bribery scandals and all that sort of thing. And But he testified uh, last month that uh, Julio Grondona, who was the former president of the Argentinian FA, that's until he died a few years ago, he was like the dawn of Argentinian football. Um, so he testified that Grondona, while they were on the phone to each other, organizing these bribes that they do, you know, they're, they're classic bribes, he suggested that Borzaco pay him an extra $1 million, which was originally intended for the former Brazilian confederation president, Ricardo Teixeira, because Ricardo Teixeira apparently owed him money for the Qatar bribe. So he kind of let that slip in this conversation. Borzaco testified uh, to that extent, and that was... That's the first big bit of evidence that this trial has that you know the Qatar vote was bought. Right, and I mean when the, when the, it was announced that the twenty twenty two World Cup would be in Qatar, I think there were a lot of gasps around that. Even amongst maybe those who are more cynical, who imagine that FIFA is corrupt, that one assumes that there's going to be corruption every time, whether it's vote buying, bribery, and so on. I mean, the selection of Qatar really stood out. It's not a footballing nation. It was going to be held originally in the summer um, in the desert. I mean, it just sounds insane. Um, there wouldn't be the audience then kind of the natural audience there for it um so what was the kind of dynamic behind that well i mean there's no there's no doubt that actually seeing the world cup going to these places and going around the world like it, as it went to south africa in 2010 and brazil in 2014 um, there's no doubt that this is largely a good thing that the world cup is, is going around the world um, but as you say there's there was just so many and uh, different logistic problems right away with the selection of Qatar and when you look at that particular that particular vote you had obviously the United States were another candidate and that is a place where I mean like it or not they do have essentially the entire infrastructure there already and Japan and South Korea also put in bids separate bids this time and again they've still got all the same infrastructure from the 2002 World Cup they would only need to do a little bit of work and um, they basically have their thing ready. And then obviously, yeah, Qatar comes out of nowhere. 
everyone um, completely shocked by that decision. But as we've kind of suspected for the longest time, and as we know now, this is a com- this is completely rigged. You know, it's 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 just all these inside inf- all these inside uh, interests and people just handing money around. Anyone who wants to have a go, the highest bidder, will in fact, you know, you can buy a World Cup. That's what we take from that, really. Yeah. So, I mean, if we flash back to the last kind of big scandal, which was really the the biggest one I think FIFA has encountered around 2015, mm. which ended with um, the the banning for eight years from football of the FIFA president um, Sepp Blatter and the president of UEFA, the European uh, Football Federation as well, um, of Michel Platini. Mm-hmm. So can you explain a bit about that? And I think there's also an interesting question there about how Blatter ruled in terms of trying to expand football beyond the kind of core countries of North America, Europe, maybe Japan. Um, yeah, sure. Well, basically, so this, the the bomb that dropped in 2015 that's a part of this of, of these ongoing trials that we've got at the moment and this was an investigation that began in I believe it was 2013 uh, into corruption in FIFA and essentially what happened on May 2015 you had two days before the FIFA presidential election before Sepp Blatter would eventually be re-elected the police stormed I think yeah so the Swiss police I believe or the prosecution service I can't exactly remember the details Mm. there but so they stormed this really fancy Zurich hotel where all these FIFA officials were staying and eight guys were arrested uh, among them like the the really big names there you've got uh, Jeffrey Webb who was the CONCACAF president at the time guy from the Cayman Islands Uh, Eugenio Figueiredo who was the Commonwealth president at the time in Uruguayan uh, fella, you had uh, Jose Maria Marin, who is um, a big, is well known to us here in Brazil as the former president of the the Brazilian Confederation, and a real piece of work. And yeah, so you had this massive wave of arrests that happened on on May, and at the same time, you had eight other people who were indicted. The big one was uh, Jack Warner, who is the real kind of linchpin in this whole thing. And maybe it's worth talking about him a little yeah, bit. Yeah, well, I mean, Jack, the, the, the opening clip you'll have heard in the medley before the, at the beginning of this episode will have been of Jack Warner being questioned uh, and telling uh, a reporter, why don't you ask your mother, you know, where the money came from, etc. Um, yeah, exactly. That was that was the, everyone's favourite Jack Warner. And so this comes from, these arrests came from the testimony and the guilty pleas of two really important figures. In this whole story, one is uh, Chuck Blazer, who was, he's an American guy, he was in the FIFA executive committee, and basically the FBI found several kind of corruption allegations against him, they got a lot of evidence on him, and they flipped him, essentially. And so the reports say that he was wearing a wire for a couple of years, like recording everyone, recording his, his former friend Jack Warner. I mean, it's almost it's almost like nominative determinism, because it's a guy in a blazer, and I mean, this might be particularly British um, sort of stereotype, but it's sort of the men in blazers. It's kind of the men the, the, the men running football and they seem like kind of fairly fatuous stuffed suits who try to run the game but don't really know what they're doing and are all corrupt. And this is kind of the image that I think probably a lot of people have of football administrators yeah. and especially at the high-up levels of FIFA, it's kind of, um, kind of even more exaggerated. Yeah, I think so. Although Chuck Blazer, if you look at him, he doesn't really fit that He doesn't that fit that, but, he, but his name's a blazer. He's, 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 you know. <laughs> He's more kind of caveman-like, I think. Than, right. Um, 
than 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 Mr. Blazer. But yeah, so you've got that. You've got um, Blazer's testimony, which in which basically implicates Warner in various vote buying scandals in the World Cup. I mean, we can go into that at some point if you like. But um, that was one of the most important testimonies. And you've got another guy, uh, Jose Avila, who's the owner of Traffic, who is which is this massive uh, sports marketing company which has affiliates in um, Brazil and the US. I think they've got one in Europe as well. And he essentially gave up, I think, about 70 or 80% of these guys on this original indictment. Um, that was that was through Jota, Jota Avila. And essentially, so what they were doing is your kind of your basic corruption scandals. The first part was based on the, the vote bang for the World Cup. And the other part was based on the bribes and kickbacks paid to these regional confederations for these contracts between them and sports marketing companies to broadcast major tournaments, right? You know, like so, World Cup. All that so, sort of like, I mean, okay, if you take it as a given, then that the thing's a mess. Um, mm-hmm. I think Ben was saying earlier before we even started recording that you kind of expect you kind of expect if a World Cup happens, it's because someone's been paid off. I mean, that's yeah. just kind of the way the thing is run. Yeah. Um, I was just going to say, it's. Kind of amazing, <laughs> given the precedent that uh, everybody in Russia, Brazil, and South Africa, seem, and definitely Qatar, uh, was in the fact it was obviously a, a corrupt process to win the bid. But nobody's really talking about Germany or Japan and South Korea, these first world nations that got the World Cup, when I'm probably almost certain that they also bribed their way to get the World Cup. It's sort of double standards right there. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so, I mean, this is, I guess, what I was sort of driving at is that there is a certain kind of political regional dynamic to this and certain double standards at play, which maybe sometimes aren't discussed because it's all, oh, well, it's all corruption. And especially when it involves African or Caribbean or mm-hmm. South American nations. And then the kind of the general Western commentary is kind of roll your eyes and go, yeah, well, of course, of course, it's going to be corrupt because it involves these types. They don't have a cultural of, of cleanliness and all these sorts of cultural stereotypes about corruption. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about kind of the history of FIFA, how it got there. Yeah, so the the reason that you have all of these countries who the kind of Western folk believe that are all just like inherently corrupt and, you know, tin pot nations and that sort of thing um, in, in FIFA. The reason that you have this is, well, I mean, originally they, were, they became members, most of, the, most of the current members became members after the Second World War when FIFA was just an absolutely tiny little organization like they just had a handful of staff and essentially their only job was to organize a world cup and they really had no other duties it was just paperwork and they were led at the time by stanley rouse who's an englishman former head of the fa the football association in england and he was like this this really kind of nerdy referee type he was actually a referee for a while and because as everyone knows all referees are either cops or nerds and it's one of the two and generally you prefer the nerds to yeah, the cops yeah but. <laughs> i think so yeah thankfully he wasn't a cop yeah. but yeah so he and he had this really kind of corinthian idea of the sport like he he thought that footballers should always be like olympic olympian amateurs you know that sort of thing mm-hmm. he was completely against professionalization right from the start even though that he was president up to like the 70s. Right, so, so it's sort of like an aristocratic, gentlemanly oh, yeah. ethic. Yeah, and uh, unfortunately he, he also supported apartheid in South Africa, <laughs> which, you know, that's, I just can just slip that in there. 
and yeah, he's very famous as well. Actually, the the reason that he lost the support of almost everyone was you had in seventy three, in a playoff for the World Cup, it was a Chile against the Soviet Union, and FIFA demanded that this game be played in Santiago, and of course, uh, Pinochet had just basically launched his coup like about a couple of months earlier and the Estadio Nacional where the game was meant to be played was being used as a concentration camp so I mean you had people you had lots of prisoners there people being killed and mm. tortured and so FIFA were like no no we don't really care Stanley Stanley Rose wants this game being played in the Estadio Nacional clean out these prisoners let's have a game you know um, and then the Soviets the Soviets just decided to um, reject this and they were eventually kicked out so Stanley Ross okay he's a pretty old school reactionary figure what, what comes after him what, what changes with FIFA right so after this event with the Soviet Union there's protests everywhere so everyone is against FIFA because everyone kind of realises how much of a humanitarian blunder this is because they're essentially forcing a team to play in a concentration camp so after that the next election is a year after and bearing in mind that we've already got FIFA's already worldwide in terms of its membership, so we have an incredible amount of members uh, in Africa and the Caribbean, all that sort of stuff. You know, you've got a lot of members, and you've got one vote per state. And so the man who comes along to challenge Stanley Roast, and Stanley Roast does stand for re-election even after this, and the man who comes along to challenge him is the former head of the Brazilian Football Confederation, uh, João Avalanche who he's a he's a fascinating figure actually like he was originally an olympic swimmer and very kind of athletic born to belgian parents and he made his millions first of all buying and selling like coaches um like even even football today, coaches buying and selling football coaches yeah um no he, like even today like his 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 massive bus company like you'll see it everywhere in sao paulo and all over brazil that's joao avalanche made that and when the uh, dictatorship took over in Brazil in 64, he got very close to the generals and he ran Brazil's kind of delegation for the World Cups in around like 58, 62 when they won and in 66. And so he was the big man in Brazilian football and he had this dream of becoming FIFA president. And he already well versed in the way that Brazilian politics work, like the political geography of that, where you've got 27 states and they all have equals, equals says, essentially. He spotted this around the world that FIFA has hundreds of members and each one has a vote. So he played that game. He went around, uh, toured Africa, toured Central America, toured Asia and, you know, pressed flesh, all that sort of stuff um, and got everyone on side. He ran on this kind of global ticket so that football was no longer going to be just for the Europeans. And like he won very comfortably, very comfortably. So essentially, in his first few years, actually in his first like decade of the presidency, he does a lot of good stuff for football. He, he, he turns football into the global game that it is today, um, where you have African teams essentially get qualifying for World Cups, which Stanley Rose thought was the worst thing, you know, the worst thing imaginable because they just weren't good enough. And um, so João Avalanche, you know, gave them the chance. Uh, the development projects were started in these continents. And, you know, a lot of good grassroots stuff happened in that time. But obviously to maintain that power, 
you know, you've got to... Grease palms. Exactly, grease palms, um, which is where it all begins, really, um, to kind of, to try to consolidate that kind of, that kind of system and that kind of hold that you have on FIFA, you really have to uh, give it a lot of concessions. But also at the same time, one of the most important things he did was he, he turned the, the World Cup into what it is today. Because the World Cup beforehand was, you know, it was the, the, the top footballing competition in the world, obviously. But it was never anywhere near this kind of cash cow that we have today, you know, with all these huge sponsorship deals. And Joao Avalanche in particular, there was one meeting which he had with the son of Adi Dassler. Uh, I believe his name is Horst Dassler. Uh, so obviously the creator and the CEO of uh, Adidas. Where they forged a deal, a sponsorship deal, which essentially changed football. Because after that, you had FIFA picking their specific sponsors for each kind of brand you know like a they have one drinks company yeah they have one electronics company they have one fast food place which has lasted until today and this made it a this made a multi-million dollar business so suddenly you've got a lot of a lot more money sloshing around degreasing more palms and that's and he he just kind of propagates this power that he already has that he's already consolidated and to keep that and now there's so much more money in the coffers and this is the kind of first stage of FIFA as it is today. And then eventually in the 90s, he he passes it all on to his uh, his general secretary, uh, Seth Blatter. Well, he doesn't literally pass it on, you know, there is an election. Um, but with Avalanche on Blatter's side, you know, there, there's only one winner. And... Blatter basically took the lessons that he learned from Havelange and took Havelange's way of uh, of controlling FIFA and he continued it but also kind of expanded it into these kind of grotesque proportions creating essentially a state within Switzerland uh, like the FIFA house uh, which you, you know no one can no one can speak a bad word about the FIFA house and you know this completely opaque organization and what you had was with even more money in the coffers than there were before sponsorship just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and this kind of corruption that we see today reaches insane insane levels like for example you had one of the most interesting stories in this current trial uh, when the into FIFA was this story about the 2010 World Cup, the South African World Cup, the the buying of votes for that, because essentially this was everyone knew that this World Cup was going to South Africa. Like this was a gimme, because it had been essentially promised to South Africa in 2006, and then after the Germans worked a bit of a like I believe there was there was some talk of an arms deal that the Ger- that the German government uh, did with Saudi Arabia right. to eventually uh, get their support and so South Africa were absolutely incensed because they they essentially been promised this world cup and then FIFA said no it's okay like you can have the next one it's going to Africa that's when they started this rotation system of it goes to one continent and then another continent and then another continent and then another continent the only country ready was South Africa but even then even when it was so clear that this World Cup was going to South Africa, uh, Chuck Blazer and Jack Warner both received uh, multi-million dollar bribes for their votes for South Africa. 
because they they took a trip to Morocco, who were the only outsider nation in that um, in that selection process. They were the only ones who put up any sort of credible candidacy, but they had absolutely no chance. They had no support. Uh, Morocco offered them one million dollars each, and then as they were <clears throat> as they were leaving Morocco, uh, Chuck Blazer received a phone call that the South African FA were willing to offer them ten million dollars uh, for social development projects in uh, Central America, which uh, do not exist and have never existed. Actually, $5 million of Warner's share were given to a, like a Trinidadian supermarket chain, and I think he used $2 million of it to pay off credit card bills. And so it, it just reached these really, really obscene levels where there isn't even this connection to this grassroots development of the sport that you actually had at the start with Avalanche. Um, Havelange, really, he can be blamed for creating this whole thing, but it was a different kind of FIFA back then. So, I mean, we've obviously got um, very widespread corruption, but something changes that suddenly the US, particularly the FBI, starts investigating this. Um, were they just miffed that they didn't that they weren't awarded the World Cup? I think there's a there's a very strong argument to suggest that. Yeah, there's a bit of a vendetta going on here. Because this will kind of foreshadow something we're going to come on to talk about um, in relation to doping, which is the question of Russia and the way that kind of the geopolitical questions intrude on this in a very obvious and blunt way um, in the guise of using soft power of sport, etc. But um, but yeah, so we, with the US, there was their suspicions that... Well, this, it all started... This, this... Sorry, when, 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 when is this? Just to... Because I, I didn't know the FBI inve- investigated FIFA... Uh, what what sort of time is this time period? Well, they started the investigation in uh, twenty thirteen, and they actually okay. well, and th- that's really just right after Qatar were were awarded the World Cup, and ironically, you know, it was um, Qatar and the sorry the twenty eighteen and the twenty twenty two World Cups were the hosts were announced at the same time, and Qatar beat the United States for the twenty twenty two, and then you have all sorts of kind of investigations being launched by the FBI and this particular investigation is stems from that and um, which is from we saw when they went after Chuck Blazer because they had suspicions that there was vote buying between him and Jack Warner and so they thought from this that they could get some sort of dirt on Qatar and now as I said like right at the start like they have actually for the first time they've got a bit of concrete evidence on it I mean, it's absolutely no surprise that there was vote buying um, mm. for the for the Qatar World Cup. I'm sure we're going to hear a lot more and um, a, a lot more concrete evidence to that extent. But yeah, I, I I would suggest that a large part of the motivation behind this is a bit of a vendetta because they didn't get the World Cup. I mean, there's a kind of maybe default assumption, um, or maybe this is just me, but there's a default assumption, I guess, that FIFA as a sort of international organization is somehow representative of its members interests and therefore has maybe some vague sense of democratic legitimacy i mean i assume that's maybe a lot of people's default assumption and they're outraged that it's not but that's not exactly what it is is it i mean you know these are these are it's an association of football associations which themselves are um often held under a lot of suspicion domestically as well so yeah Oh yeah, so it's the football associations, like the national football associations. It's also the regional football associations as well. So you've got all these, you've got all these different kind of factors at play here, and and all these kind of 
regional and national politics being involved. So it's yeah to 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 imagine FIFA as this massive democratic organization for of the world of football is you know yeah that's not realistic. So I mean, unless someone here wants to defend corruption, I'm going to pause and just let see if anyone wants to come in. There is a defense that you could make that it's been inherently redistributive in some senses that it's leveled the playing field, allowing smaller uh, delegations such as the uh, Caribbean one to have more of a say in uh, the way that FIFA funds gets distributed. And the purge of FIFA has been led by the European and American elements, which would change the power balance in, in football to favor the global north. And once again, all the blame would be put on the South. Um, so in essence, FIFA would, anti-corruption FIFA is like anti-corruption politics everywhere in the sense that it's selective and chooses a specific narrative that enforces existing power structures at expense of the more popular side of football, in particular football in the global South. Right, no, and I think that's a good point because remembering back to 2015, when a kind of a debate exploded around this, there were some proposals put forward. I remember there was one by Nate Silver, um, the you know the stats twat, the the, the, the twat <laughs> with the st- the twat with the stats, the guy who doesn't really care about politics but thinks he understands politics because he's got numbers, um, but but doesn't understand politics, but doesn't understand politics, um, and he doesn't understand football either for that matter. He does lots of sports stats and whatever, but uh, lots of modeling and whatnot. But he made an argument that it shouldn't be based on one country, one vote, uh, the way that the FIFA is run, but based on countries' GDP. So, you know, the the U.S. would have 100 times more votes than Congo or something, Um, which is a clearly backwards sort of argument. But I think it does expose a certain dynamic here, which I referred to earlier, which is that if only kind of Europeans, and North Americans were left to run sport, it would be done in a much more just way. And for all that it might have for all that it's an exceptionally corrupt sort of way that it's run, it has at least kind of generalized and universalized football um, even though that's involved a grease of a lot of palms. Yeah, I wouldn't mean, wouldn't wouldn't kind of uh, perfect corruption just be that the richest countries can spend the most money. So Right. Yeah. So there's not not enough corruption. We need entirely <laughs> entire corruption. Bring back blatter. Yeah. I mean that's not what exactly what I was driving at, but more just the fact that the the kind of arguments against the kind of con- the, the, the administrations of Avalanche and Bladder and, and, and onwards have kind of seized on particular elements, as Ben was saying, mm-hmm. um, to push a particular agenda, which has maybe not even that much to do with cleanliness versus, you know, corruption. Yeah, I'm, I mean, as I mentioned earlier, like, you, there's, there's so many bad things you can say about Joao Avalanche in his time and, as the, the president of FIFA. But if it wasn't for him... Perhaps someone would have came along at some point, but FIFA would have remained this this tiny, this this micro bureaucracy with only a couple of staff that only really cares about these European clubs. And I mean, if you, if if you, this argument of FIFA being basically run by the Europeans again, I mean, we see what the Champions League's like. Yeah. We see what the major leagues of of Europe are like. That you have this tiny little group of the top clubs who just share trophies among each other. They share players among each other. Obviously, you can't do that on an international scale, but you would essentially have that. You would have this massive concentration of these big nations in Europe, and perhaps even back in the Stanley Rouse times, it was like that. You had the big nations in Europe and then a couple from South America. 
who were kind of constantly challenging them. And this is why we get excited about the World Cup, despite the fact that one could argue that the Champions League is now a higher standard of football. It, but that's where the greatest is. play. <laughs> yeah, yeah most okay. definitely. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was just being rhetorical. Okay, it's the best, it's the highest standard of football, but we still get incredibly excited about the World Cup. People who don't even like football get excited about the World Cup. Phil, I don't know about you, but um, but normal people get excited about the World Cup. People who don't even like football, and partly because it is this that that you get these strange matchups between countries who've never faced each other. You get Senegal against you know Iran, and you're like, that's actually genuinely interesting. I don't know any of these players. It's, it's all that sort of exoticism um, that maybe football used to have that no longer does. The World Cup still maintains. I guess that's maybe some of its appeal. Despite all the perennial scandals, yeah, I mean, like next year, for example, like we'll have we'll have Peru in the World Cup, we'll have Panama in the World Cup. You know, Egypt are back as well. I mean, and this is this is what we watch the World Cup for, surely. Like, yeah, it's it's. There's Can I, still... I, I? I definitely don't. I hate those those kind of dead rubber group <laughs> stage matches. Between it's just not a good standard of football. I don't I don't particularly want to watch that. Oh, I, I just wait until the knockout stages. That's when that's when I actually get excited about it. Obviously, by that point, England have also gone out, so I can be, <laughs> you know, I'm not, I don't have any hope. You're divested of any emotional investment, so you can you can enjoy without any any tension, without any regret. Exactly. You see, this is typical of the English football fan and their attitude towards <laughs> global football. They feel entitled to be in the World Cup with their rubbish anti-footballing style and their arrogant, pathetic excuse of a coach and man- and history of uh, football in, the- in international stage. They always lose. They play bad football and they always build themselves up with shitty pop songs. At the end of the day, it's the romance of the World Cup is seeing Panama play nigeria and the stakes that that means in both countries seeing egypt get to the world cup in fact it's my hope that england never qualifies for the world cup again we'd better <laughs> off without their nonsense i think our scottish friend here would definitely agree with that one <laughs> yeah I would, de- I would definitely subscribe to that yeah. but i mean i think we're going to come on to something which is I, I find particularly english which is a certain indulgence in scandal and sanctimonious responses to it which uh, i think we should move on to now which is the question of doping um, and we're going to loop back to football, but we're going to talk about doping a little bit broadly. So just to paint a little bit of a picture, um, one expert uh, in, in performance-enhancing drugs reckons that six out of eight 100-meter runners will be strongly implicated um, in doping. So to be more specific, only 10 men have ever run the 100 meters in 9.8 seconds or less. Um, of those, only two of those have been untainted by doping allegations. So it's very generalized especially in sports like running athletics in general cycling and so on but i think it's quite clear that to any kind of critical observer the current regime doesn't make any sense i mean if you have people continually falling foul of the rules you're basically criminalizing a huge swathe of of athletes of top athletes that system can't continue right so does a regime make any sense uh, george what are your thoughts well i think i think that's it's, it's an open secret I mean, in, in all athletics, to the extent that it's it's kind of ridiculous um, that there is still this pretense that it's that doping doesn't go on. Um, and I don't know. I think it's I guess we can come on to talk about what we should do about it. But it just um, it, it seems not 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 very credible to say, oh, yeah, this, this this sport is is at all tenable when everybody knows that the incentives are so strong. And as as this um film Icarus which is on Netflix really interesting film shows 
you can you can get around the tests quite easily. There are so many about things like, you can about do. Lance Armstrong. That film is right. Um, a clip yeah. of which we heard in the in the medley at the beginning as well. Um, who I think is probably the most the most celebrated drug cheat. <laughs> um, and I mean, I know lots of people who who were completely heartbroken at the discovery that he was cheating, and uh, and you know really, really saw him as an icon genuinely. Um, and I think. It, it does speak to the emotional investment that one has in athletes, which, again, is something we're going to come on to talk about. I was going to defend Doping, but I'm going to let Ben come in because I know he was he was wanting to come in. Well, I was going to say the Lance Armstrong story is actually the classic example of why there's such popular outrage against doping. Put it this way, Lance Armstrong's narrative is almost a classic tale of Christian redemption. He uh, had testicular cancer. He thought he was going to die. And he came back from it in a heroic rise out of nowhere to win the Tour de France, not once, but seven times to create a new record. Throughout this narrative, he was portrayed as Mr. Clean, Mr. America, a future governor of Texas. But if you look carefully, what he did is throughout his career, almost all his rivals, and in fact, many of his own teammates, and anyone who knows anything about cycling knows your team drags you over those mountains to win that grueling race, were accused of doping. And every time, Lance Armstrong would lead the media charge against them. He would try to ruin their lives, humiliate and bully them, isolate them. He would use his bully pulpit and his iconic status as an American, in fact, international hero to do it. So his image, his reputation, his financial success, his uh, status as a political figure was all tied into his bullying on drugs. And what it does is it differentiates between the good guys and bad guys in sports. And the good guys are the ones which these sporting administrations like FIFA, these uh, giant NGOs and these giant corporations can get behind. So it's all about these narratives of cleanless, of, of clean sport to sell products at the end, I think. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it also highlights another um, topic I wanted to touch upon, which is a certain individualized perspective on sport, which is to imagine that sporting genius is uh, somehow... Um, something out emerges out of nothing in the individual rather than being a collective effort, even when it's a, 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 an individual sport. Um, but even a collective sport, you know, Lionel Messi, the greatest footballer of our times and possibly all times, w- was a creature of sports science. Barcelona were able to bring him over at a young age, give him the hor- growth hormones he needed, coach him and so on. So despite him being undoubtedly an exceptionally talented individual and who would have been a brilliant football, regardless of... Um, his experience at Barcelona, even if he had remained in Argentina and so on, he still would have been a brilliant footballer. But I think in the kind of anti-doping hysteria, one loses out the, the sense that all sports are a collective endeavor, even when they're individual sports, and that you know one stands on the soldiers of giants, whether you're your antecedents or your contemporaries, and you know somehow trying to clean out doping as something extraneous to the sport misconceives the issue doping all forms of performance enhancement from training to diet to everything is part of the sport it's part of what makes an athlete so i I think drawing a strong line and saying you know um having glucose during a run and taking epo as completely two different things one is morally good the other one is morally bad seems to be a very arbitrary distinction well if you also look at it the incentives in sports where especially in american sports where there's sort of no security, long-term security for players, and you could very easily get injured and lose 
your entire career and end up with uh, permanent physical damage. So there's a real incentive to also make sure that you recover from injuries. Um, as long as there's more of an incentive to dope, if it grants you victories, if it gets you forward in the game, if it gives you career, people are going to take it. It's the same as any form of cheating. If people in uh, the English media, commentators always champion these savage tackles that could potentially end people's careers and these physical bullies who cajole, destroy, and assault everything that we like about football as these sort of manly figures of sporting excellence and fair play. But the guy who dives, the guy who dopes, is punished as some sort of person beyond the pale. These are very arbitrary moral standards. And I would also add the harsh punishments given to players for recreational drug use is also bizarre. Recreational yeah. drug use, but these players, it's basically saying that you're supposed to inspire the kids. You shouldn't have a good time and be a normal human being. So these, you can get a almost lifetime ban for doing a little bit of blow, for smoking a little weed and failing a drug test. That's not going to help you with your game. In fact, <laughs> I would argue that Maradona, who had a terrible drug addiction, so terrible if you read his autobiography, he basically says he can't remember any of his time playing in Napoli. Maybe he wants to hide some of the dealings he was there because he was so high. And I'm sure if you do that much cocaine and still that good and still <laughs> winning entire tournaments by yourself, including a World Cup, including dragging Napoli, a second-rate team, to the top flight of the elite of, the, of European football, with that cocaine addiction, that makes you a better player in my eyes. <laughs> yeah, I think that it was it was quite inter quite interesting in this uh, context to see what happened when Jack Wilshire was uh, caught smoking. It was like the like universally the whole media rounded on him, and he was forced to issue this apology, basically saying he's he'd let himself down, he'd let his team down. He'd like this the athlete's body is something that has to be sort of protected, and you can't. Like as if you're a professional athlete, you can't do things which will um, there's some kind of moral problem with you yeah. doing anything which will not improve your performance. Um, but then there's this line where obviously doping's not acceptable. So it's it's um, yeah, it's, it's there's a sort of cult of cleanliness, which I think is something that Ben already referred to, um, where a, where an athlete also has to be a moral figure. You know, they want to be they're held up and expected to be role models for children and so on. And it seems like, I guess, you know, it's often commented we live in an anti-heroic age. And it's also the fact maybe we can't even accept kind of tainted heroes somehow. Um, or at least the kind of media depiction is this. Because I think popularly, people do love the fact that Maradona was a, was a cokehead and yet still was a brilliant figure. You know, we love our, our kind of damaged heroes, sometimes more than the perfect ones, right? Roger Federer, the greatest tennis player of all time, you know, an unbelievable athlete. But it's kind of boring because he's just too perfect, right? Because um, he's Swiss. Because <laughs> any Swiss. Um, but, you know, so I think there is this there is this disjuncture, I guess, between a lot of media discussion about it, which is hysterical and very sanctimonious and moralizing, and a kind of popular appreciation of the sport, which maybe doesn't buy into that so much. I don't know. Thoughts on that? Well, I, well, I would argue it's different depending on which media environment you're in. In the South American media environment, it's certainly different. But because we are all Anglophone and we overwhelmingly dominated by the, the Anglophone sporting coverage, meaning almost entirely the British media in terms of football, we stuck into their standards. And there's even a double standard there. Gaza was also a degenerate coke user, a psychotic pranker, an utter alcoholic, was celebrated because of his attitude. 
you go and talk about the good old days of football where people used to get drunk before matches in the 80s and 90s, you have all of these media figures praising this as it was a man's time, it was a man's game. But, and even, uh, although we can all laugh at Rooney for eating pies because we all hate Rooney, but at least I do. Uh, <laughs> but if you look at the way the attitude they take it towards foreign players, it's seen as a foreign problem, this form of cheating, especially doping. They really round up on the foreigners who bring up these terrible South American values, these cheating ways. But there's still, like, Maradona becomes this demonic figure for uh, uh, his hand of God, for his uh, cooked-up ways. But Gaza is a lovable rogue we can always forgive, despite the fact, if you look at Gaza's actual behavior, having watched a couple documentaries and read about him, he did some really messed-up things. He beat up his wife. He's not a good guy. And Maradona's never been accused of that. Yeah, I mean, and I think there's this cultural narrative that we've established around kind of sanctimoniousness, a cult of cleanliness. Um, but that also gets translated very easily into geopolitical relationships. So you have the kind of collective punishment of Russian athletes at Rio 2016, where they were initially all Russian athletes were banned. And then it was then after left to individual sporting federations to decide on it. And some maintained the ban, some didn't, um, which is extraordinary. Um, and very obviously a, a facet of the geopolitical tensions and the United States and allies attempt to isolate Russia. Um, so these things are, I guess, not just a, an innocent sort of discourse that you can reject or accept, you know, according to your to your feelings, but actually has some political impact, right? Yeah, I mean, it's particularly like, if you think about this uh, Russian doping scandal, it actually just fig- comes straight out of the anti-Soviet propaganda of the Cold War. Remember, of course, when the United States famously boycotted the Olympic Games in Moscow during the height of and the frenzy and the and the craziness of the Second Cold War. But there's always been this narrative that those sly slobs are just willing to use any way they can to dope up their athletes to get advantage of the West for pride, regardless of the fact that the millions of dollars, including millions of dollars evading doping, they're pumped into American athletes are virtually identical to the Russian operation. The Russian operation is depicted as a sort of threat to the established order, marking Russia as a rogue state, as opposed to the NATO states and the ordered states of the West. Russia is transformed into this rogue sort of axis of evil state, which is straight out of Cold War propaganda, because we can't possibly understand their motives, and also straight into this sort of moral panic about Russia that's happened over the last few years in American politics and also in European politics too. Yeah, there's there's another kind of element of this narrative straight from the Cold War as well, which is the the Russian state kind of being very indifferent or callous to the long-term effects of, of all of this doping, just wanting to produce these kind of superhuman, maybe subhuman athletes with gene therapy and kind of crazy Soviet technology um, just to win. And then not caring if these hormones you know, in later down the line might have negative effects on the, the athletes because they're just a collectivist society. So they don't care about the individual and the consequences. They <laughs> yeah. just want to win, want to win the medals. And if anything, the, well, the kind is... of the East German example, which is the one that's always trotted out, was more a problem of, uh, of backwards technology rather than doping. I mean, it was just, it was more that their doping wasn't of a high enough standard um, such that wouldn't have effect. It wouldn't have such negative effects. And one thinks that with a certain relaxation of the doping regime, um, that you know it would allow technologies to be tested out to be safer to be have more transparency around them and so on um so i I see very few arguments for maintaining the kind of current 
anti-doping regime. Well, it's a, it's a, it's a general sort of legalize. The strongest argument always for legalizing is that you improve the quality of, of drugs, uh, the, safe, the safety and also the, the quality if, if you're using them recreationally, I guess. You said that with well, a lot I'll of give, heavy I'll... breathing. It was weird. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll give two points to this. One is that look at American football. Out of all the sports that I've encountered, having lived all over the world and followed many sports pretty closely, it's the one with the least care and systems ready to deal with the impact and the long-term impact of this quite brutal game does these players. They end up in wheelchairs with rotten minds through they've smashed them against so many people. They are mentally and physically handicapped by the time they're 35, 40, let alone by the time they're 50 or 60. And because of the American and also now British attitude of being hostile to the welfare state through spirits of collective care, these players are dumped, literally dumped if they didn't have make enough money to look after themselves. And especially if you get an injury when you're still playing. And uh, yet there's this hypocrisy over doping. Surely that destructive practice is something that can also be rectified, especially in the fact that so many of these players just played college football and never went pro. Of course, in the United States, you can't get paid to play college football. And the second thing is, my argument is as somebody as a humanist who believes in the unlocking of human potential through technology and collective growth and emancipatory political projects, hell, sport might get better with more doping. I know the heroic superhuman stunts, and I don't really like cycling, but my dad did, so I watched it when I was growing up, that you got in the height of the doping era before they cleaned the game up. You saw these athletes go in these 100-kilometer breakaways over the biggest mountains in Europe. Those were much more fun to watch than the boring results that you got after they cleaned up the game. I personally prefer the doping era. The personalities were better, the sport was more fun, and it was more of a fair play, I think, in some respects, in terms of like each athlete being able to have their day in the limelight than it is now. It's just powerful machines which you can just bry your way into all of these into success. I think doping actually leveled the ground somewhat. Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, I th- and I think you know, obviously, there's a technical discussion to be had about you know where one draws a line would it one accept bionic athletes you know which might be a step too far you want because again i guess well, the, you on, on the, on the you humanist talk about oscar pistorius i don't <laughs> no we're not talking about oscar pistorius um, we're drawing a line there but the i think there's an argument there where on that very humanist level that a, a champ you know a championing of excellence of of seeing humans push themselves to the furthest extent possible athletes not even necessarily caring so much about their health but wanting to be the best there's something which is admirable maybe heroic in that in an age which is very much anti-heroic and so i think there's some definitely something to be defended there to move this on a little bit we want to talk about like a last kind of two last things about sport which is one is maybe cheating moving on to cheating in general because and here i want to focus on the nature in which sport is enveloped by scandal seemingly constantly and what drives that. Um, so one example of, of so-called cheating was uh, Thierry Henry's handball in the, qualif- the final qualifier for the 2010 World Cup, which saw France qualify and their opponents in that match, uh, Ireland, not qualify. Um, it was called the Hand of Frog incident, which I thought was good coin. Um, it's not bad. Re- in reference to the Hand of God of Maradona. And a frog, because he's fancy. I'm going to stop explaining the joke. Um, <laughs> the Irish completely lost their shit. And the British took the Irish side. Um, 
complaining that this was it outrageous. Must be the first at the... time in history. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> no, they, no, they, the, the the Irish are kind of the, the the Brits' pet, and so they like to kind of take their side because they're a bit like them, but in a very patronizing manner. Um, and you know, th- this became a sort of international incident. Eventually, ended up with FIFA paying off the Irish to basically shut up and stop complaining. Yeah. Um, FIFA ended up paying for the new Aviva Stadium, like essentially the the redo to Croke Park in Dublin, because the Irish wouldn't shut up about Thierry Henry. <laughs> I mean, and you know you can laugh at it and whatever, and ultimately it doesn't matter that much. It got resolved, and we're going to come on to the question of does sport matter? But you know the, these things kind of end up a massive media spectacle, and I don't know. I just for me there's an issue. One wonders what what motivates. The constant scandal in sport what is this desire that things should be clean that all wrongdoing should be punished i mean I, to me it's it looks like and you know this is open to question to me it looks like something that it's a projection of people's desire for justice which is unrealized in the kind of social and political world and is projected onto sport i mean that's that would yeah, be well, my interpretation i think i think it's I a disagree. good question is, is is it a is it a moral or an aesthetic projection do, do people want sports to be entirely fair or is it a, an aesthetic kind of judgment that that somehow cheating is is ugly because as an, an as an english football fan probably the most famous incident of, of cheating which i'm very ambivalent about is um diego maradona's hand of hand of god goal because it, it's kind of incredible that he manages to to out jump peter shilton who's like eight inches taller than him and punched the ball in and gets it and gets away with it and it's and it's, and it's um you know obviously england ended up losing as a result of this goal and then the the second goal in the game which is also scored by maradona for for argentina which is probably the best goal ever where he beats like 20 odd england players but that actual moment of cheating itself i think is is has to kind of be admired because it's it's takes a great deal of athleticism and bravado and um yeah i don't know how i can really say that as an england fan but it's uh it's a, a kind of a beautiful uh moment of that match in a way good good cheating yeah. should be applauded I, well i've got a different opinion i think in uh most sporting cultures outside of the uk and to the extent of the united states as well which are both sort of anglophone nations and in the, uh, there is a uh open embrace of cheating People see it as just another way of getting advantage over other players. Uh, if you look at the reception to the hand of God outside of the UK, everyone thought it was great. It was like, you know, who wouldn't do that? Or, for instance, other famous instances of cheating. My belief is that in that cheating and the anti-cheating culture that's dominant in these sort of media escapes and crafted narratives is a product of the United Kingdom. It's a product of actually post-imperial melancholia in the UK. My argument is that, essentially, the England's shite at football. It's not very good. It doesn't really do anything. And there's always a sense that we're entitled to be good. We create this game. There's something unfair. And if you look it's, at... It's the, our sort of, game. Yeah, it's look at the British <laughs> sort of uh, mentality around, uh, in sort of the Tory mentality, in the little England mentality. It's always that we under siege... These foreigners don't play by the rules. Britain was always the underdog, even when we're the biggest yeah. empire in the world. We're always fighting against these people. And the Americans have, uh, do it as well, they, to be fair. Yeah, this sense of advantage mm. over us. There's never like, hey, uh, you know, we were really powerful and we kicked their asses. Yay. Yeah, There's always the sense of like, we're so, under siege. And the, what that means is when the this moralism that comes out of this in an age where Britain is no longer such a major power, 
and in particularly not a major football power. It's a way of complaining, saying there's something intrinsically wrong with the order because we're not prospering it. It's because of unfairness, inequality. They don't play by the rules. They don't sense of the sense of fair play. And the sense of fair play is further tied to this idea that it was that that built the British Empire with our British stiff upper lip and cup of tea and masculine virtue. We colonized the world, un- un- unleashing the white man's burden of civilization. The empire was a good thing. I think that's all connected yeah, to this anti-cheating fair, character. Fair play is the luxury of the aristocracy. Yeah, yeah, I, think, yeah I think this yeah. is... I think there was an important point here, though, that de- decolonialism was uh, was cheating, basically, against the, the British Empire. Still have an empire if it wasn't for the, all of the, the rule breakers who just decided they didn't <laughs> want to be part of it anymore. <laughs> you know, colonial rules are meant to be broken. <laughs> no, they're meant not to be broken. Well, yeah, just, uh, just to take this back a bit, to like this idea of so Ben's example of hand of the hand of God in South America basically being revered, which is is exactly you know that, that's very true. It's it's revered as this really kind of clever improvisational move, and the fact that he didn't get caught is makes it even better essentially. And this is like so football is introduced into South America by the British. And they have all of these really kind of Corinthian kind of uh, amateur values uh, into the sport. And then over time, the South Americans start to kind of subvert this. You know, so they start to create this kind of craftiness. And like in Brazil, you call it malandraging, which is like being this kind of being this kind of sneaky uh, cheater who kind of wants to take advantage of you all all potential moments. And also in a popular manner. You're fighting against mm. the man by doing that. Exactly, yeah. and that's it. And it, well, it was fighting against at the time your the establishment of football, which was essentially just played by the elites. And so you had these kind of young black players coming in and and kind of deceiving them with their sometimes their skills, which were you know perfectly within the laws of the game, but then with these other kind of tricks, you know, and and, and it was their 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 act of defiance towards the, the the football establishment, as it were. And you even get this until today. Like you have in the like the South American Champions League, the Copa Libertadores, you've always got this this stereotype of Argentinian and Uruguayan teams being the best in the world at time wasting. Yeah. <laughs> and whenever well, they I mean, play, yeah, and whenever they play against a Brazilian team. Like the Brazilians are quite good at it as well, but they they recognise that they're just not quite as good as the Uruguayans <laughs> or yeah. the Argentinians. And there is this, uh, there's lots of complain, lots of complaints by the Brazilian like pundits and all that sort of stuff. But at the same time, there's always this kind of admiration. Yeah. It's just like, oh god, you know, I really wish we could do that. They, really they've done us again, yeah. Yeah, I really wish we were so well, shameless that we could time waste as well as yeah. the Uruguayans. Well, to go up to a level, sort of like uh, abstraction almost. If you look at the skill, like the feint, the step over, you know, the rabona, the correct turn, it's, it's all it's about crazy. deceiving the player with your body motion, with what you have at your disposal and going the other way so you can get the space to move before him. There's also an element of humiliation involved. But the act of diving is also deceiving the referee. It's the same sort of theory, using your body to make them think the other, you're going that one way when you're not, to make them think one thing or you do something else. And secondly, I mean, I would also like to um, suggest on that on that note, this act of deception as well is kind of enjoyable. People can be really skilled divers. And uh, often you actually have to protect yourself from these thuggish, 
thuggish British players with their horrible studs up and manly approach to the game by diving. If I'll put this to you, if Cristiano Ronaldo, who's an almost physically perfect specimen, had not gone and preempted the challenges he had got in the UK, particularly when he was younger and less of a Olympian god than he is now, he would have had a much shorter career. He would have been more injury prone. If you take those challenges like a man, you're fucked. Your body is fucked. There's something you need to do but protect your body through diving. Yeah, well, maybe your counterpoint to that would be someone like Lionel Messi, for example, who has never had this reputation of kind of diving or even kind of framing contact or all that sort of stuff, and he, he'll get kicked for 90 minutes. Not quite as bad as it used to be for someone like Maradona or Pelé or the, these kind of greats in, in, in that kind of era. But he still... Um, he, he he still is like the the victim of of, of quite a bit of violence throughout um, all the games that he plays, and he's always one who he'll take the kicks that he won't he won't try to kind of protect himself, which is probably his own fault actually. Like he probably should start diving a bit mm. as he's getting on. Actually, well, actually, I think I mean when we're speaking of that uh, tax dodging midget, we have to think about it in this terms. He actually does dive. You can go YouTube and find clips of him diving. <laughs> he's also playing in the Spanish league where he's not playing a much a bunch of thugs who like nothing more than to get wet and stoke and like try assault somebody legally. He's he's in a <laughs> league that has more respect for the technical side of the game. Yeah, no, that's true. And I mean, you know, at the end of the day, diving, um, I don't think is it should be penalized because all you're doing is undertaking an act of deception. But it's the referee's job to spot that. It's not you're not in, you know you're not breaking the rules of the game by stopping someone from playing. All you're doing is falling over. If the ref decides uh, to uh, misunderstand that as you having been fouled, then that is the ref's problem. I'm sorry, this 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 cannot run. I I as much as I sort of understand the intellectual case for for diving, it's I I just cannot ever enjoy seeing a, a player who plays for a, a team that I support or. A, a player that I'm playing with on the same side diving and getting a free kick or getting a penalty. It's I just think it. Um, I, I, I guess as a as a player, it just it just frustrates me so much to see you know to see people dive. And I guess it's like, yeah, there is a certain element of deception and, and skill involved in it. But I w- I don't think I could ever applaud a, a dive. It's like it's it's if you if you want to win in that manner, then. Why are you playing? That's, we're just that's we're just going to have to differ approach. here because we support the same club here. I mean, if we're talking about Liverpool, I want to see Liverpool dive. You know, when Luis Suarez dove so many times to win us penalties uh, in the season where we nearly won the league, that was a glorious moment. I was like, this is pure will to win. This is sacrifice for the cause. This is human excellence. It's excellence in a manner which is not often celebrated in sport, but the, the excellence of deception is something that should be more celebrated. And in, you know, in Latin America, as Ewan has uh, eloquently described, it is. Um, so I think it's a particular Anglo-American post-Protestant hang-up. Yeah, Suarez is the one exception. Actually, there's two things to say about that. On the- one is that Suarez was willing to take all the media flack and hatred for his acts as well, which was really cruel. Yeah. And secondly, if, if you don't like diving, there's one simple remedy to it. It's called video refereeing and instant replays. If you don't support that and you are upset about diving, I'm sorry, you have no case to stand on. So I think we've sort of established that there's uh, one sort of narrative about 
uh, cleanliness, about against cheating, a kind of cult of cleanliness which exists, and a sort of maybe popular counter narrative which is a, which is much more accepting of deception of cheating as a way of of the little guy getting his own back. Um, so I think at least at a metaphorical level we can accept that there is something social, if not quite political, to sport, um, and a lot of people understand maybe come to understand even society or politics through the metaphor of sport that it provides. Um, and yet there's still this argument, particularly on the left, which um, has preoccupied the left for a long time, that maybe sports the opiate of the masses. Um, as literary critic uh, Terry Eagleton put it, you know, football is a dear friend to capitalism. So I'm just going to selectively quote um, from an article of the same title as a, as a way of, of prompting a kind of closing discussion on, on the sport and football question. So he says, modern societies deny men and women the experience of solidarity, which football provides to the point of collective delirium. Football blends dazzling individual talent with selfless teamwork, thus solving a problem over which sociologists have long agonized. Cooperation and competition are cunningly balanced. The game also mixes glamour with ordinariness in subtle proportion. Players are hero-worshipped, but one reason you revere them is because they are alter egos, who could easily be you. Only God combines intimacy and otherness like this. Men and women whose jobs make no intellectual demands can display astonishing erudition when recalling the game's history or dissecting individual skills. Like Bertolt Brecht's theatre, the game turns ordinary people into experts. Okay, so this, this is all meant to be a critique of football in which he urges that anybody serious about political change um, should accept the fact that the game should be abolished. And yet, I mean, for me reading this, it sounds like a beautiful eulogy to the game. Uh, so, I mean, where do we stand on this question? Um, you know, is football an opiate of the masses or is it proletarian culture which sensitizes people to actual quite complex questions, but at, at a very metaphorical level? Well, I would say that the, the concept of the popular in, uh, which is not something that translates to English, but the space in which is held to have this emancipatory value and this emphasis on the popular classes, the working class, the peasantry, the poor that can inhabit as a potential political action is the beauty of football. It makes everyone have a space of empowerment they can engage together. And that's even one of the better things about the internet and the hating on Twitter and football is that people can hate on each other in a way that builds solidarity from across the globe. Phil, Phil, you must have something to yeah. say on this. You've been you've been quiet and just stewing and, and, and thinking, why are we wasting all this time talking about football? Tell us why football's bad and we should all hate oh, it. Football's bad. No, I mean, I don't... Oh, Jesus. Um, <laughs> Not to put you on the spot or anything. No, I mean, I think, you know, I get... I think Alex is right. It is more of a kind of PM to football than it is uh, criticism of football. And I don't see, I mean, in some ways, I'd say even that, um, you know, perhaps the interest in leisure... And games, I think, perhaps already shows just how kind of um, how far advanced. I don't know. I'm just kind of throwing it out there, but maybe you know how far kind of uh, technological modernity and industrial civilization, the fact that it can allow such kind of interest to develop in sport and games, is perhaps itself a sign of uh, progress and how a different society might be able to devote itself to leisure you know if there's a passionate commitment to leisure and it achieves the kind of synthesis that eagleton mentions um you know what's wrong with that there would 100 percent be football under communism that i i think that's, that's under socialism easy. yeah under communism oh. i mean i i think football as it stands at the moment is a completely contradictory 
game. It's it's it, you have to have a equal parts love and hate for it because it is a horrible spectacle ruled over by corrupt venal assholes who seem intent on basically destroying it and and hollowing it out but at the same time it it is a extremely interesting simple game which does have a lot of the things that terry eagleton spoke about the you know the 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 complexities of 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 various ways of interacting on the pitch i mean i think that the the one thing which we, we can probably all agree on is that football has changed unbelievably quickly and it's and it now is completely meteorized and is i don't know is is something which seems to have its own narratives and its own kind of characters and and it's sometimes it's just a bit much that it's all being built up as the you know immediately after the champions league final that the, the story is on to oh, are, are the players going to stay at that club are the managers going to stay which is which makes it a bit less satisfying. I'm I'm being all nostalgic for the football of my youth when it was a lot simpler and more straightforward. <laughs> well, romantic, romantic sort of view of football. But I mean, I think the best way to put it is jumpers for goalposts. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but I mean, I think the best way to put it that I've heard, at least the most pithy sort of statement on football, was was said by Carol Voitila, otherwise known as Pope John Paul II. Football is the most important of the least important things in the world. And I think that rather captures it well and captures a lot of popular attitudes to it. Because for all that maybe some intellectuals may critique the mass culture of football in the same way that they critique the X Factor or television or uh, social media or whatever, uh, what have you, there's an element to which people do have a, a great degree of investment in it. But it's also not life or death. And I think, especially at a time... It's far more important over the past, than that. Yeah, well, exactly. Um, as Bill Shankly said, there, there's but there's an element to which people invest hugely into it. But this is over a period of, if we're talking about the past 30 years, of a hell of a lot of depoliticization after the end of the Cold War. And should there be more a political upsurge, um, greater degrees of mobilization, greater political conflict, which effectively comes to intercede into people's lives then maybe football decreases in importance. You know, I think it's, I think it's a football, the way that football has become such an important thing in people's lives, particularly um, across the media, but not only, is partly a reflection of, of depoliticization. So I guess the question is, does that, does that then change as, as, you know, maybe the world becomes more conflicted and politics comes to intercede in people's lives? Yeah, I mean, but you're looking in the wrong place for, for football to, to have political importance. So I'm not saying you are, I'm saying some, some people are. And I think that's that's right. A lot of the critiques of football come from from, a uh, you know, maybe a well-meaning place on the left where you're looking for you, p- people spend all their time on football. Football's not political. People should spend their time on politics. Therefore, football is bad. No, politics is bad. That's the you know, when if, if politics were a bit more important and interesting, then, you know, football would have a different character and it would be truer to its maybe its real character, which is, yeah, it is not that important. The real demand should be socializing football. It should be making football a popular game to reinserting popular control, uh, just like any other industry. That's that should be the demand. It's, that's the problem. We, we should politicize football yeah. as the way going forward. Yeah, I think that's a. So David Goldblatt in his book calls football a, a social democratic game in a neoliberal world, and the neoliberal control of it is is quite striking. All right, that's it from Alpha Bunga Bunga in 2017. 
except that we're back in two days' time with a short bonus episode, it's our 2017 year in review, and then we're back on the 10th of January 2018 with a discussion on what the fuck is going on in South Africa. Remember to subscribe, tell your friends, catch you then.